So, dinner stocks again. We have a new podcast for you. Today we are going to be talking about parallel changes. Okay, so as uh, just mentioned, today is a day in which we'll be talking about parallel changes, of which I have absolutely no idea what it is. So, uh, your host, uh, Jorge, mumbles if you want, and we have today with us Alfredo. Hello. And Alvaro. Hello. Which have been with us before when we were talking about the sovereign no, crafters. Yep, that's correct. Uh, which is where I heard for the first time about, about this idea of parallel changes. So, uh, let's start with Alfredo. Tell me, what it is parallel changes? It's not something very complicated in a sense. Um, you know, uh, everybody has done sometimes a, a change that has very half the application or that has provoked 200 compilation errors. Yeah. So instead of doing this big change uh, and breaking everything, uh, you can do your new design in parallel without touching the old design. Um, once you have the new design, you can start slowly replacing the old design with the new one uh, without breaking everything. And there are different techniques that we will talk about them today. I think that some of our listeners would think of this as other names that we have in the industry. One of them is expand and contract. And other names is convergent and divergent refactoring. So it all boils down to the thing that Alfredo was mentioning, in which you expand the functionalities of your system. And in the end, you end up with two different ways of doing the same. And then you converge, you remove the old way of doing things and prefer the new way of doing it. Thus, expand and contract. That, for example, Danilo Sato has defined very well in the Bleaky page that we'll talk afterwards. Okay, so so this is all about doing um, doing changes without at any point breaking your compile and your build. And I suppose that uh, you have tests. You should not be breaking tests as well as you go along. The theory behind it is you don't need to test, uh, sorry, to change the tests, right? Because the old behavior is going to still be in the system for a period of time until you change it and you converge to the new behavior. So in a way, all of the behavior should remain the same, whether it's the old way or the new way. And at a, for example, at an end-to-end -end test level, nothing should change, right? So you, you replace how the system is behaving, but you don't replace the exact behavior. Okay. You have to have an idea. What, what is the history of parallel changes? Where, where, where is that, Alfredo? This one I have prepared. 
Um, it was introduced in a talk by, in 2006 by Joshua Kriski. I don't know if I pronounced it correctly. That's fine. We'll put a link to him. Yeah. <laughs> on. He is the author of refactoring to data, uh, refactoring databases, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe was it refactoring to patterns? No, I think he's the author the author of refactoring to patterns. But I think he doesn't mention it on the book. Uh, the the first time he talks about it is in this talk in 2006. Okay. Um, and how come you have heard about it? In my case was. I think in 2013, again in the in that conference in Software Crafters Barcelona, and it was mentioned by Carlos Blair. I think he mentioned it in one of his talks, and then we did a kata in, uh, in a group, and we also mentioned it there. By the way, Refactoring Databases was written by Pramod Tadalaj, uh, not by Joshua Kerbiewski, so that's my bad. Uh, so, Alvaro, when did you hear for, uh, for the first time about this? As well on Software Crash Machine Barcelona 2013 or a different place? Yeah, I, I also had it, uh, had it there. I, to be honest, I didn't know it, it had a name back then. I saw it from a colleague at work and uh, I thought that that was a very smart way of changing things because he, he explained it to me. In theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, they are not. <laughs> which is which is a funny way of uh, you know uh, yeah. dealing with uh, with operations in practice. And uh, so, in theory, you test everything in the pre-production environment. Everything goes well. When you put it to production, boom, everything fails, and you don't know why. Meanwhile, your software is down, right? Okay. So we have an idea of uh, what it is about. What are the steps? I suppose there's a, there's a, is there a list of steps, a list of uh, techniques that you can apply? Is there a recipe for it? Some kind of formula? Or how, how does it go? Yes, we usually talk about three steps. One, it's uh, expand, that it will be create the, the new design. Then the second step will be migrate, that it's uh, start changing the old design uh, for the new one, and start replacing the old design from the new one. And the third step will be contract, that will be ended at the end removing the old design. Will, will that mean that, uh, that I can replace uh, a class wholesale using this uh, approach? We can think about this in a very local, small place, like, for example, changing the parameters in a method. Or, or we can think about this in the context of changing something bigger, like changing uh, the endpoint of an API. In the scenario of a local method that you want to change the parameters, um, there are a few techniques, but for example, uh, what you can do is instead of changing the signature directly, you can, for example, make a copy of the method and then starting changing the method, changing the parameters, changing the design and adding new tests to, to the new method. And then there are different approaches. Uh, one will be, let's say that this method that you're changing, it's, it's being called by 20 different clients. So you can start by 
changing one of the clients to call to the new method and if it works well then you can start slowly changing all the other 20 clients until you are done or you can make that the old method calls the new one and then using one of the refactors of from the ID the inline method you can make all the all the clients use the the, the new method automatically uh, one thing that is coming right now to mind is something that, that I have uh, I think I never actually tried to do it like that um, but uh, we had the idea uh, of needing in a previous company needing to change some uh, some functionality on a C sharp object C class and one of the things that we thought about to be able to kind of step, uh, develop it in parallel was to have a common interface and let's just use dependency injection to the switch between one and a, another will that be part of this idea of parallel changes actually i think this will be one of the techniques used for parallel chains and i think it's called branch by abstra abstraction okay so we have several techniques here yeah several techniques in there for continuing the, the previous topic without uh, going to what you're suggesting, Jorge, so for, for better understanding this, I think it would be helpful to mention the difference between public API and published API. Published API is the API of an object that is consumed by clients outside of your reach. Let's say you're writing a library, your yeah. favorite library, think of your favorite library your client code is coupled to those objects, to the API of those objects. Yeah. And you as the library designer, you cannot change the client, right? Because mm -hmm. it is widely used on the internet and you cannot change them all at once, fine. So this is what we usually call published API. On the other hand, public API is the same exact API that you have on a client, sorry, on, a, on an object, but you control all of the clients. So for example, if your team is responsible for two services and one of them exposes the API, but you can change all of the clients at once because they belong to you, we usually call this public API, right? Yeah. So let's, let's take a general example. Twitter has an API. Twitter's API is published because they don't control the client. On the other hand, internal APIs that we as Cogurans produce and we as Cogurans consume could be considered public, just public, because the, we don't give access to anyone else to those APIs. So for that, for that purpose, there are different levels of restrictions. In general, okay. for published APIs, we try to be as backwards compatible as possible because we cannot force millions of people to change at once whether it's REST APIs or library APIs or anything else. On the other hand, for public APIs, we can be a little bit more stringent on harsh on our clients and give them a deadline to update. Okay, okay I see. And how, how will you approach? We are able to give more time to the published API uh, because we don't want to mm -hmm. force 
millions of people to update at once. So imagine Twitter uh, wanted to change their API and on a Friday afternoon they said, yeah, yeah, we want to change it and from now on it's gonna be no longer available, right? That will be, that will be a small problem for the community. On the other hand, if all of the clients belong to your team, you can coordinate the effort, right? And you can say, okay, so we're gonna update progressively all of the clients, the three clients that we have to this uh, service. And when the new, sorry, when the old method is no longer public, we're automatically gonna fall back to the new one, right? Which is another way of using parallel change. Will be the techniques that you use then different between one or the other, or it's just the what you have to take into account in terms of when you do the changes or how you tell people that you're doing the changes? Yes, I think some of the techniques are applied also for APIs. For example, if you want to change an endpoint of an API, instead of changing the the endpoint directly, you can create a new endpoint and again start changing the clients slowly to to use the new method. It's a bit bit harder because here you cannot use the inline method refactor. Uh, you need to update the clients uh, manually. When we talk about APIs. Something uh, commented uh, when you read about parallel chains, they talk about Postel's law. In the same endpoint, you can accept two types of messages, the, the old one and the new one. You check if it's the old, you call the old code, and if it's the new, you call the new code. So Postel's law is one of the basic tenets of the internet creation, right? So it's about being conservative in what you emit, and being liberal in what you accept. So if you were conservative on both ends, you will not accept the new request. You say, uh, this is this is not valid, right? I I I don't I don't oh, yeah. understand this and I don't want to understand it. On the other hand, if you're a little bit more liberal and you say, okay, this is the new format of the message and I could translate it to the old one and use it and consume it, you are more mm -hmm. liberal, right? So you are easier to work with, easier API to work with. On the other hand, you should always be conservative on what you emit. So whatever contract you commit yourself to, you should respect it. Otherwise, clients have to be unnecessarily liberal to it. Okay. What uh, other techniques do we have available around these changes? Right. So. Alfredo was mentioning that you can do these pilot chains at multiple levels. So it could be for code, for classes, right? For, for different implementations. It could be for databases. For example, you could change the schema or you can change the table design. And you can even go for data source, right? So a simple example would be to change from SQL to NoSQL or even in different kinds of uh, SQL or different kinds of NoSQL, go from persistent data stores to non-persistent ones. So a very, very wide array of uh, changes in, and techniques in there. Um, for mm -hmm. that purpose, I would like to, I would like to recall a 
workshop that uh, Eduardo Ferro did on the last software crafters in Barcelona. And um, he was he was doing a parallel change workshop. He reminded us, or he set the expectations for uh, software as a service SaaS businesses. Uh, I re I would like to remember some of them. There's like continuous and no downtime operation. So there's no windows for maintenance. Mm -hmm. We usually work in a trunk-based development fashion. So we don't block other team members. We use feature toggles to separate deployment from release. We, on, you know, on the yeah. process side, we like to use continuous improvement, right? And we like to use DevOps methodology. So parallel change is a technique yeah. that also allows all of these SaaS businesses to grow, even that we, we never have to stop the business coming in. Well, quickly, who is Eduardo? Eduardo Ferro is from Spain and it's a very well-known developer in the Spanish community and he has lots of experience with using these techniques and he put together this, this really, really interesting workshop about parallel chains. We can put the, a link to the slides of the workshop on the post later. Okay, okay. Yeah, we'll link to them. Um, you were going to say something else? If while listening to the podcast, you cannot wait for this to finish and find the link. His Twitter account is eferro, E-F-E-R-R-O, or Eduardo Ferro. Uh, he's, he's an excellent guy all around and has a lot of knowledge of, uh, as, uh, as I was saying, how change legacy code. He's, you know, he's a, he's a very, very good guy all around. <laughs> I want to make a comment on what Alvar commented because he mentioned trunk-based development and I, I love it but I know lots of developers uh, when they listen about trunk-based development they run away and of course uh, uh, parallel chains helps a lot if, if you're using trunk-based development but if, if you're not uh, you can also benefit uh, from the from using parallel chain. I want to make a comment on what Alvar commented because he mentioned trunk-based development and I, I love it, but I know lots of developers uh, when they listen about trunk-based development, they run away. Imagine that you are starting a big refactor that takes one, two, three weeks. If you start uh, changing the actual code, you will not be able to comment and push for three weeks. Uh, if you do this, uh, you can comment and push it every day. Well, yeah, if you're not changing the code that is already present and then you are, you are adding just uh, new methods, new classes, uh, that makes the, actually makes the, Git flow, the whole Git flow, for example, much easier to follow. Mm -hmm. huh. yep. Yes, it's actually very simple in a sense, uh, but until something, so somebody tells you, you don't realize it. Okay, actually, that's, an, that's quite an interesting thing. Because as you said, that there are people that don't like to do the don't like the idea of trend development. Even when it's, I personally find it quite interesting. But this is uh, something that you can use to make their lives easier. Hmm. 
Just nice. so we all speak about the same. What is trunk-based development in one minute? It's a different Git flow. So instead, for example, using a band pair feature, uh, you are pushing every time to master. So the changes are usually smaller and very well tested. And usually you need a more mature team to, to use it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, it's this principle. I don't remember the name now. Uh, it, um, if it hurts, do it more often. So <laughs> it's about pushing to master. Yes, it's about pushing to master more often. Um, at, at least once a day is the recommendation. Um, yeah, it's about continuous delivery. Okay. So. Jorge, you were asking for another technique. Uh, yes. Alfredo was talking about replacing code. I would like to give you an example that we've used in the past for replacing a service for another service, right? So a bigger unit of uh, yeah. work to be replaced. So at a, at a previous client, we were trying to replace a service invocation with another one. We were functionally equivalent, but the implementations were not the same. Persistence was not the same. They were, you know, one was in the monolith and another was in another new surface. So what we did to begin the expand phase is first of all, to isolate the change in a single class, right? So create like an yeah. entry point, like a facade to the, to this functionality in a single place so we can isolate it very, very well. Um, we did this behind the service, right? So behind the service class. So yeah. for the next purpose, what we did is assume that the old behavior is correct because this is what it's being used in production and also call the new one, call the new behavior, right? Mm -hmm. do, do not use the new behavior yet. Just put it, you know, in a try catch block. So even in case it fails, my old behavior is not going to be affected. And I would like to get some real feedback from it. So if there is anything unexpected happening with this, I want to log what's happening. I want to get real feedback, you know, with real requests that this is not functioning as it should. Then once you have a little bit more um, trust in your new software, what you do is you, you put the new software in the critical path. So you query it first, and then you query the old software as well, and you compare the outputs, right? You, com you compare the results. They should be exactly the same, right? Exactly, exactly the same to the last bit. If they match, you return the new one. If they don't, you log that they're different and you return the old one. What are you achieving with this? Oh. You're moving part of the behavior to the new service already, but yeah. still maintaining 100% of the cases correct. Because whenever they're different, I stick to the old behavior. So you deploy this to, you deploy this to production, you test for a few days or for a few weeks, whatever you deem necessary. When you no longer see errors in your monitoring system, you have a fair 
guarantee that the new system is working as expected and it can replace the old one. Do you want to say something, Alfredo? Yes, uh, that's awesome because I'm not sure if we made it really clear that um, uh, two designs can can be can live together even for for months. If you start looking on the internet about parallel chains, there is lots of of places referencing the same example. It's a GitHub example. If you start looking on the internet about parallel chains, there is lots of of places referencing the same example. It's a GitHub example. So what they they did, they started building the new merge tool. I think it was f four months that whenever you created a, a pull request, they were executing the the two libraries and comparing the results. This this allowed them to to find bugs in the, in the new library they they were building. But they even also found books in the in the old library. <laughs> but for for months, uh, you were seeing the results from the old library, but they were executing both and, and comparing the results. And uh, interestingly, that try to remind me of uh, ah, what's his name? Ah, uh, uh, Samarin. Um, uh, Miguel de Caza. Yeah, Miguel de Caza, which he used to say that they help when they were creating the, the summary version for uh, for Nick systems, they help fix issues on on the on .NET and CLR because when they were trying to copy what they expect, say, yeah. the, the behavior was different. Okay, does it affect the the performance of the of the system much? Having this parallel, well, well, I suppose you're running parallel, no, but you still have to do a comparison. So there still ha has to be something about the services doing, checking that everything is correct, isn't it? Yes, of course. If, if you are executing two libraries instead of one, it's going to take twice the time and consume twice the resources. Uh, for example, if you're changing from a type of database to another, uh, let's say relational to a non-SQL, uh, you're going to have uh, and and you're running for months. You're going to to be running for months uh, and paying for the two databases. So yeah, uh, as everything, all have its trade-offs. Yeah, it's everything. Okay, so uh, continue continuing the the case with the service. After you don't get any complaints from the monitoring system for a few, you know, for a few days, weeks, or months, whatever you deem necessary, you can assume that the old behavior is completely uh, replaced, can be completely replaced by the new one. So you take the old system, you know, you decommission it, you take it out from production, you keep it in a in a locker for a few months, and when you're sure of it, you you can easily throw it away. Based on the example that Alfredo was mentioning from GitHub, so GitHub published an open source library called Scientist. Scientist is a, so we'll, we'll publish a link on the, on the podcast, but a library, this library that I'm mentioning is very useful when you want to run an experiment replacing one system for another. So GitHub used it for 
fine-tuning the amount of requests that you send to the new service, exactly for the problem that you were mentioning, uh, Jorge, that it might be very expensive to run both things in parallel all the time. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can customize when the request is being sent and what are the side effects, whether you want to take the new result or the old one, you know, all, all kinds of customizations. It is very well written. You have the library in Groovy, which is the original, but you also have it in Java and other popular languages out there. Okay. Um, one question that I, wa I wanted to ask, um, you ha we have mentioned, or you have mentioned before, both of you, uh, databases. Is, is it actually possible to use this idea on databases? Because there is always issues with the, uh, the data that you are storing, that the, the different uh, how it's called, constraints that you are going to put on your database, on your uh, columns, if they, if they can be null or not null. Uh, what happens when you delete a, a, a column from the, when do you delete a column from the table? When do you delete a, a full table? In fact, without knowing it, um, we are much more used to use parallel chains with databases. Uh, because if you have a big table and you need to 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 make a change and I don't know create a new column and move the data to this, you cannot do it in once because it could take hours. So what we usually do is create the new column, start moving the data, and once we are done, we we change the code to use the new column and, and remove the old one. So we are used to do this with databases. Mm -hmm. If the operation takes too long, you need to do them incrementally. Okay, okay. And that, that, that will require that you still have, um, on this case, that the access to the database or to the tables, it is actually restrained to a single class. So, so the, what I'm thinking, uh, because I have seen, what well, you have seen, everyone has seen, um, <laughs> SQL queries display all over the, all over the code base, okay. all of the data in the same table. Okay. Uh, but of course, we, if you want to this, you cannot really have this spread of a, of a SQL queries. You will have to have them localized, yeah? So imagine uh, you need to mod modify a column that is referenced by an entity in your code. Uh, one thing you can do is create the, the new column, start moving the data to the new column. But then in your entity, what you can do, for example, is um, read from the new column. And, and if it's empty, uh, return the values on the old columns. OK, yeah. You can do this while migrating the data, and once you're finished, you can change the old property for the new one safely. Or, for example, because we are talking about when reading a new column, but uh, when you're saving, you can also save in both columns, and even you can leave it working like that for months. And maybe you don't even need to run a script to, to update the new column because. If all the users have entered, all the users will be updated, for example. Um, 
in, in the the workshop by Eduardo Ferro, it was really nice because he he had lots of scenarios like that, and you, you need to describe every step that you, every smallest step that that you will do to to make this change. So okay. to to relate uh, or to give our listeners a better context into the workshop, the way Eduardo likes to describe or the way I understood parallel change after that workshop is a mix of elephant carpaccio, which is a technique for slicing user stories, you know, as thin as possible. Yeah. In in the sense that all of them have business value and all of them are independent as much as possible, right? Mm -hmm. To apply it to refactoring. So what Al Alfredo was mentioning of creating the new table or the new column, altering the code, all of this can be done, uh, you know, in a very specific order, but the changes are very, very small, right? Very, very small. So the, th the thing you can achieve with that is reduce uncertainty. The more often you deploy to your production systems, the less you have to batch. So the less uncertainty you have to pack in a single release. Okay. So we always do the same. Uh, I think we have started with really complex scenarios to explain this, but we could start by a simple one. Imagine that you have a web, a web page and just HTML and JavaScript that you need to modify. Instead of go straight to, to make the changes to the page, what you can do is just copy the website mm -hmm. and start making the changes on the copy. So okay. If you do it like this, you, because the page is not connected to the real application, it is safe to push it at any moment. Even uh, you are able to show the progress to your client or or your colleagues can can have the latest version easier. Okay. Well, that's give us some sense. I mean, who hasn't changed? The website just for going live and everything appears incorrectly because who knew that CSS would do that? <laughs> <laughs> this is in fact what many banks are currently doing. So they they have problems with their web interfaces to their products. So instead of trying to fix them, what they are doing is building new ones. And they're doing it incrementally. So mm -hmm. you always have an option to go back to the previous site and to go forward to the next or to the new generation site. The new generation is usually different design, more usable, better UX, you know, more focused on the on the client. But we, you can, only all, hope. we can only hope. Yes, <laughs> yes, okay. We can only hope that. And the old one is always there in case you need it. There's usually a button for giving feedback. This is not working. And whenever there's a error, you always have the pop-up saying, looks like something unexpected happened. Would you like to try it on the old version? You just click there. And you know, as a client, you're a bit annoyed, but you can still work with all of the features. Okay. So far, 
from what you have been talking about, it, lo it looks to be a quite interesting set of uh, techniques or, or, or ideas to change your code. Is it usable always? Or are there places where you either wouldn't use it or could not use it? I think I think I'm afraid hit the nail on the head. So there's no silver bullet option for everything. So it's always a matter of trade-offs. So hats, hats off, Alfredo. I think you're right on the money. <laughs> I I see a little a few downsides to parallel change, right? And uh, we, we can we can talk a little bit about them if you want. Yeah, so sure. I find I find I find parallel change more expensive than doing it the old-fashioned way. So to let's say changing it in a big bang release. Mm -hmm. I think because first there's developer cost that you need to develop both uh, ways. Okay, so you have to pay both, but you also have to compare that the results are okay, and you have to fall back to the old mechanism and you have to push it to the monitoring system. So this cost, all of it adds up. You also have to run both uh, things in production, which is expensive depending on your use case. There's another downside. In case you are reading from two different databases or using two different codes, pieces of software, given that there's two of them, at least there's a possible confusion on what is actually being used at a given point of time, right? Yeah. So let's say you use the new way in 50% of the cases, and then you discover a defect with that. Okay, so what's what failed? Did it did it uh, did the old case fail? Did the new case fail? What's happening? You have to identify uh, what failed, when, how can we repeat it? Can we reproduce whatever? So it is more and more expensive. I think sometimes the change is very straightforward and it's not necessary to do that. Uh, for example, the the example we were talking about before, the the web page uh, that you can copy and modify, this this has almost no no trade offs. Uh, so you can always do something like that. Yeah. So maybe there are two people working on two different features on the same page. In, in this case, you will need to to talk about it. Uh, yeah, if if the change is very straightforward and it's fast, you can do it in let's say in less than a day. Sometimes the the trade-offs uh, of using parallel chains are not not worth it. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very 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 good point, uh, Alfredo. So all of these costs, as you were mentioning, can can take you to longer time to market, right? So yeah. the, the more you have to pay for it, whether it's time or money, uh, it, it can affect you. So if you're a, a startup or a company that is short on time to market, so you need to push things fast or faster, file change might not be a thing for you. Okay. We have talked before that there's these slides I will put on uh, the website about uh, from Eduardo Ferro, are there any other texts, any other book, uh, presentation that people can look into if they want more information about parallel changes? 
There is the Martin Fowler Ricky link. Which we will be linking, yeah. There is also a good blog post that has a really good summary and also a few references, in, including the Martin Fowler one. Yeah. One of the links is also a, a list of um, success cases of using parallel chain. That is pretty interesting. Yep. I've never read about this in any book. I don't know if it's referenced in some book, but I've never read about it. I I would say it's not directly related to parallel change, but a working faculty with legacy code by Michael Feathers um, explains also this process of changing the clients little by little, providing a new way of connecting to it and so this, in a way, could be considered parallel change. I'm not exactly sure because I don't remember from memory. Uh, I don't remember if he mentioned the name or not because I don't remember the specific context in this case. But it could be it could be an, an indirect reference to it. There might be a couple of patterns um, mentioned in this book. One in, we talked about it before is branch by abstraction. Yep. Mm -hmm. And the other one is a stronger application. Oh, I'm willing to be in our Slack. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was. <laughs> I was yeah, searching for this. I was thinking, I wrote it before going to the Nice. <laughs> Yes, if you go to the Martin Fowler wiki about the Stranger application, they have this really, I really like this metaphor. Um, he explains that he was on holiday with, with his wife, I don't remember the country, and they saw these, these trees covered by these Strangler vines, vines, sorry. Um, and yeah, these vines start grew at the top of the trees, and over the years, lots of and lots of years, they started growing uh, until they they reached the bottom of the tree and and actually killed the tree at the end. And I th and I think this is a beautiful metaphor of uh, when you use this pattern and start changing. Uh, piece by piece, the, the the old pieces by the new ones, and at the end you end up replacing it completely. Okay, cool, cool. Anything else? Anything that we want that we want to talk about? Yes, I brought some notes here. Uh, uh, we talk about uh, API versioning and how uh, parallel could help with this. By avoiding having to to create a new version of, of the API for everything, but this also helps a lot with uh, with deployments because if you don't change the APIs or if you support two versions of the messages, uh, you don't need to orchestrate deployments. Okay, yeah, I see that. And this is very helpful with microservices. If you use PostgreSQL, uh, and you don't need to orchestrate deployments, it's really helpful for microservices. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think we talked too much already. Well, then that will be all for uh, for now. Thank you, Alfredo. Thank you, Alvaro. Thank you. 
you. My pleasure. And thank you to all listeners for being with us today. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you, folks. <laughs>